0: Welcome to LFPL's At the Library series, an ongoing podcast featuring author talks, programs, and events at the Louisville Free Public Library. For more information about upcoming events, visit us online at www.lfpl.org/forward/slash/upcoming-events.htm.
1: It is now my honor to introduce to you uh, Eric Kleinenberg. Uh, We've been trying to get Eric here. He was trying to figure out, we think it's been like, maybe four years uh, that we've been trying to get him here there you know there was something that happened. I don't remember what it was but there was something that that oh it was it was a global pandemic that's right. Uh, Eric is professor of social science at New York University. He also directs the NYU Institute for Public knowledge. He attended Brown University where he earned a bachelor's degree and he holds a master's and PhD degrees from the University of California at Berkeley. He's published six books. Palaces for the People was published in 2018. If you have not read Palaces for the People, I hope you will. It's it's not just informative. It's a really easy, fun, inspiring, and enlightening read. But in 2013, In 2003, he wrote a book called Heat Wave, a social autopsy of disaster in Chicago. I think that was an adaptation of his doctoral dissertation, looking at the impact of the heat wave on different groups of community. I'd love to tell you all about it. I've spent so much time reading his work, but he's here, so I'm gonna let him do that. Uh, But the research done and conclusions drawn from the earlier work on the heat wave figure prominently in palaces for the people. I look forward to hearing what he has to say to us. Please join me and welcoming, for the first time in Louisville, Eric Kleinenberg.
2: Thank you. Hello, thank you. I can hear myself so well, I don't even have to ask if you can hear me also. Um, Thank you for being here. Uh, I know this has been a really tough week in Louisville, and um, I'm sorry. I, I I wish I felt like... What you've just gone through was so unusual and unpredictable. Things like this never happen, and it felt like a really rare event, and it makes me sad that this is the kind of thing that's happening in our country on pretty much a weekly basis this, these days. So I feel some solidarity with you, uh, but my heart goes out to you. And on Monday when I got the news, my first thought was, maybe, maybe this is not the time for me to come to Louisville, and then about five seconds later, I said, this is exactly the time when we all need to come together and do this event. So thanks to all of you in the, in the library for making sure we did this. Um, I really, it means a lot for me to be here, and it means even more for me that you're here as well. So, so thank you. Um, can I clarify a couple other things here just to change the mood? First of all, I wanna be completely clear that when we started this conversation in 2019, I said yes right away, okay? Let's be really clear about that. The the way you made it sound, it was like, oh, yeah, I'll come, but I only want green M&Ms, you know? And I want no green M&Ms in my room. I was not difficult. I basically said yes right away. Let's make this happen. Tonight, before I speak tonight, I'm going to go back and I'm going to find the first email I got from Chandra, which I think was in 1846. And and, and I'm going to prove to everyone that, you know, I said, yeah, we've been trying to do this a long time. Uh, So first, I'm very happy about that. Second thing, I think we should just clear it up since we're going to get to know each other in the next 15 minutes. It is true that it's my first time in Louisville, but I actually married a woman whose family is from Lexington, and she, you'll be thrilled to know, is a Kentucky colonel. And it sounds really nice. It sounded very nice to me like in the courtship stage of our relationship because she said, I have access to great bourbon, which was true, actually, but it turned out that was just the liquor barn. Uh, and, and then she said, um, and I have uh, tickets to the K- Kentucky Derby whenever we want to go. Okay, We're about to celebrate our 20th anniversary in a few weeks. Never been to the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> so uh, I, I, have, I have some familiarity with some parts of Kentucky, but I'm really happy to be here. Okay, we only have 15 minutes for this little segment, so... I want to just get to the essence of things, and the essence of things is that um, I'm here in Louisville to talk about libraries and why they matter, and to talk about the broader category of thing that I think the library belongs to, which I call social infrastructure. And that's kind of a wonky and weird concept. Um, I'm guessing most of you did not talk about social infrastructure at breakfast this morning or at the bar last night, so I thought what I'd do is I'd just give you a quick primer on that idea. And so when I say social infrastructure, here's what I mean. I mean um, that there is an infrastructure for social life that is just as real as the infrastructure that we need for for transit or for water or for communications or for electricity. And we, we haven't really recognized it and appreciated it because we haven't had a name for it. And it's important to give that thing a name. So it's not a, it's not a metaphor. I, w- I want to tell you that the, kind of the big picture argument I want to make is social life doesn't just happen because people want it to. It's not enough. It's not enough just to want to get together with other people. It's not enough to want to just have a, a good society, to be in a decent city. You have to build the material foundations that make that happen. Now, you can get together despite bad social infrastructure, and people do it all the time, but you're much more likely to have a lot of it and to have it be durable and sustainable and rewarding if you're conscious about it. I wanna say also there's different kinds of social infrastructure. Um, There's some kinds of social infrastructure I call bonding social infrastructure. It's really good for getting people just to bond with each other, to get to know each other, and it's neutral as to whether those relationships are good or bad for society, all right? Here's an example of bonding social infrastructure. Country club, right? Anyone here ever been to a country club? Very nice, right? Probably the country Golf course, tennis courts, swimming pool, barn grill, lounge chairs, right, Maybe nice big bathroom. Sometimes my wife goes to the bathroom in the country club, but I have no idea why. She's gone for a couple hours, but that's another thing. Now, we don't go to the country club very often, but okay, so here, country club, amazing social infrastructure. Great for bonding, right? People join a country club so they can meet other people and get to know them better. Their their kids marry each other. They go to parties together. Not great for the other thing that social infrastructure can sometimes do, which is bridging, right? bond, uh, country clubs are the kind of social infrastructure that bond people who are generally pretty much like one another together. Not all of them, some of them do better. But generally speaking, country clubs are exclusive. They look for a certain kind of people. There's different country clubs for different kinds of people. Right, It's America, we got all different kinds of things, but generally speaking, not great for bridging, okay? So neutral, they, they can bridge, uh, don't worry, it happens to me all the time. Um, other kind of social infrastructure, which I think is kind of more important for democratic societies that want to do well, especially for democratic societies that ha- are having problems that have to do with, you ever use this word polarization around here, does that make sense? Yeah, polarization, yeah, right? Um, bridging social infrastructure. Uh, bridging social infrastructure is the kind of place that's accessible to everybody, that's, that's open. Um, some of them are really welcoming. Some of them are programmed. Like they, they're programmed in such a way that they encourage people who might not otherwise hang out together to interact with each other. And they don't always do this, but when bridging social infrastructure works well, it actually helps to Engage people, connect people who are from different places. Maybe even people who believe different things about the world. You know, it gets the green people and the red people, and it helps them interact with each other. Um, sometimes those relationships can be really important. Uh, sometimes, sometimes they make the difference between the health of a city or, or a suburb and the demise of that place. And there's not a lot of bridging social infrastructures out there. Not a lot of bridging social infrastructures. We, we live in a moment where we have invested a lot of resources in building bonding social infrastructures especially in the in the private sector like places that make people feel like they're going to be surrounded just by the people who are like them we, d- we do that in our neighborhoods right by the way unfortunately we do that in our churches more these days more se- churches are getting more segregated right you go to the airplane your uh, airplane fly a lot you you know When I was a kid, just being on an airplane, being on an airplane was an amazing, amazing experience. You felt like you were the most privileged person in the world. Now there's like four different lines when you get to the airplane, right, for all the classes of people. Actually, I think the airline I was on today had eight different classes of people, right? And so everything tells us, you know, don't worry, we're going to create an experience that allows you to be comfortable. You're always going to be around the people who are like you. And I think part of the reason we're in the predicament that we're in in this country is because we've forgotten about the value of the bridging social infrastructures. We've gotten so obsessed with like, am I platinum, am I gold, am I diamond, am I super triple platinum? Or with the feeling like, you know what, I'm really resentful of the people who are diamonds and platinums, because they really annoy me, they think they're better than everybody else. We, we've, we've just, we think too much in these kind of clannish terms, and it's a problem. I don't think we can solve that kind of thing by just bridging social infrastructure, but I think that's where we have to begin. So why are we here? Uh, can you think of a better social infrastructure for bridging than the place that you're sitting right now? Is, is there any place? Is there any place in Louisville where you could walk in any day of the week and see Louisville for what Louisville is? I don't know. I've never I've never been here before. I, I got out of the car. I had one of the, what's it called, a hot brown? You know about the hot browns? I had a hot brown 50-50 on whether I have a heart attack in the next 10 minutes. <laughs> I had a hot brown. That's my experience with Louisville. But as soon as I came in the building, I was like, oh, yeah, I know what Louisville's about a little bit more now. And actually, I'm the kind of person who, when I, whenever I go to a town, maybe some of you are like this too, you are in a library at 3 o'clock on a beautiful Friday afternoon. But the, if I can, the first thing I do is I go to walk to the library because that's where, that's where you see, like, what does the city think of itself? How does it invest in itself? Does it, did it make something beautiful, you know? Are there problems in Louisville? Yeah. Is there amazing stuff going on in Louisville? Yeah. You see it all within a few seconds of walking in the door, right? And the library helps remind us. It's like a reality principle in a world that's in a fantasy, right? In a delusional world, the library is, is reality, but it's also not just reality. It's this kind of magical place. Like for me, the library represents it expresses the very best in what a good society has to offer. It's it, it stands for openness. It stands for democratic culture. It's all about accessibility, right? This is a, I think we're in the Carnegie building right now, right? This is the original Carnegie. Tonight we're going to be in the new building, 1969. Okay, but Carnegie, okay, the the title of my book, Palaces for the People, it comes from Carnegie, right? Um, and, And I actually didn't go in this entrance, so I don't know if this is like, if it works like this, but the idea of Carnegie's Palace for the People was, he was an immigrant, right? Came from Scotland, moved to Pittsburgh. Uh, grew up in an immigrant neighborhood, and he saw in the library a place where people could make something better of themselves. And when he made money, he wanted to create buildings, institutions that gave other people that opportunity. And so the typical Carnegie Library, I don't know if it's true for this one, so I could be getting in trouble here, but you usually have to walk up a couple steps before you get in. Is that right? Okay, thank you. You have to walk up a a few steps. When you get in, there's kind of like a Pretty impressive entrance. You tend to see some big windows. High ceilings, maybe. And, and the reason, you know why you go up those steps? The idea is that when you walk into the library, you are exalted. You're, you're being lifted up out of the profane, the, the world of the tenement apartments, the world of the factories where you're six, seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day. Right? Actually, he probably liked it when people worked six, seven days a week, but that's another lecture for another day. But, but... The notion was that the library would, would welcome and dignify every person who walked in. To write this book, I spent a couple years going to the library every day, different, like different library branches. There's one I liked a lot. And um, I saw you, you actually have to work very, very hard to get yourself kicked out of a library. Like, you could do it. I could tell you how, <laughs> no, if any of you are curious. But you really have to work hard to get yourself kicked out of a library because the library is... It, it's, it's not just a, a social infrastructure, it's also programmed by these magical people we call librarians. And I know you pay them so much money here in Louisville that they, they have all the love and appreciation that they could take. Uh, but think about this. Like their, their job is not to say when you come in, like, would you like fries with that? Uh, or would you like to supersize it? They, when a librarian asks you when you walk in the door, is how can I help you? How many places do you go where the first thing that someone asks you is, how can I help you? You know? And they don't judge you. And they, and they really are happy that you're there. You know, they, they, do wanna, they, they really want to help you out. They're going to respect your privacy. If you say, like, I want to go find this movie, they're not going to say why, right? How many places do we have that do that? Not so many. Right? Not so many. I, just, I probably just got a couple minutes left. Came a long way for this 15. You get 15 minutes, they said. You get 15 minutes. Okay. Um, can you do a thought experiment with me? Can we agree that the library is a pretty good thing? I don't have to persuade you? Yeah, okay. All right. So, so a little bit like uh, kicking down an open door here, preaching to the choir. So, so given that we're all here because we already, you already believe what I just told you, so maybe I should have said something different, but it's important to remind ourselves that this is special, right? Um, and by the way, it's not, like, it's, it's not like social infrastructure is something we build, something we have to conceive of design, invest in, maintain. Anyone here read the Old Testament? Anyone ever read the Old Testament? There's no line in Genesis. Tell me if I'm wrong. I don't remember a line in Genesis where they say, like, on the fourth day, God created the library, right? That's not not in there. We had to come up with that, right? So that's why it's important to stop and appreciate this thing that sometimes we take for granted. I'm not accusing you, but sometimes we take for granted. Like, the library is always going to be there. You know Missouri just voted, to, they're about to vote to defund the public library, right? So don't take, don't take stuff for granted. Don't take stuff for granted. Actually, I ask people sometimes, like, here's the thought experiment, and we'll close on this. Imagine there was no such thing as a library, all right? No such thing as a library. We're, we're all sitting here tonight in uh, an Apple store, okay? No such thing as a library. And you invited me down, and I pitched the idea of the library to everyone here. And we all got really excited about it, okay? And at the end of this meeting, we said, you know what? Uh, instead of our usual Friday afternoon uh, cocktail, I'm trying to remember what they call it, and it's not the Kentucky Derby, there's something there, the Dirty Derby or something like that was the cocktail. They're trying to push that cocktail on me at the hotel with my giant plate of cheese and turkey. But um, uh, it, was really, it was very delicious. Um, Imagine if we said, like, OK, instead of going out for a drink, we're going to, there's no such thing as a library, right? And after this, we're all going to go. We're going to get on buses, and we're going to go to the governor's office. And I understand a lot of people here like the governor now. Is that, is that right? So I, remind me of the governor's name? Brashear? OK. And we a lot of respect for this governor. We said, hey, listen, we've come up with this great idea today in Louisville uh, we've got this idea for a thing that we're going to call library and this is what we want you to do we want you to build this like awesome library in downtown Louisville with an old building that's pretty grand in the front and then this kind of modern brutalist building people aren't gonna, they're going some people are going to say it's really ugly but when you get inside you're going to realize how great it is you know we're going to build a big library in Lexington and then we're going to have Branch libraries in basically every neighborhood of every city in Kentucky. We're going to build a library in every suburb of Kentucky. We're going to build a library in every small town in Kentucky. Here's how this is going to work: we're going to we're going to hire public employees called librarians, and um, their job is going to be to be in these libraries six, seven days a week, and to be like aggressively welcoming to people, you know, um, and. Um, We'll f- To get people there, we'll fill the libraries up with everything in our cultural heritage. We'll, we'll, we'll buy books, we'll get uh, videos, movies, TV shows, we'll have music, we'll have uh, periodicals. Someone told me they got this thing here called newspapers, like you get printed words on pages and you read them, we'll buy some of those, we'll get a subscription. We'll have uh, like a crafts room, uh, we'll have community rooms, we will have comfortable furniture, We'll buy a bunch of computers. People could just use them. We'll get laptops, right? We'll get tablets, and um, uh, we'll tell people uh, that they can take all those things home with them if they want to. They can just take them out of the library and bring them home, and to make sure that uh, they return them, we're going to use the honor system. Uh, by the way, Mr. Governor, everything in the library is going to be free. People can just come. You come in for free, take them for free, um, and, that, and, and that's how it's going to work. Okay, library doesn't exist. There's nothing like this. I know you like your governor. Raise your hand as high as you can if you think the governor would be like, that's an amazing idea, we're doing that right now. I'm spending that money. (laughs) Raise your hand. Okay, okay, all right. Okay, I'm gonna tell you something, okay? I I count about eight hands in this room, okay? Of people who like the library. Eight and a half, that's a half a hand right there, Indiana. Um, That's a record, by the way. I've asked this question in a lot of rooms. That's the most people who've ever raised their hands. Um, and, I, and I know it's a big deal that you got this, go- this governor. I know there's people in the library who like the governor, but can I tell you that eight out of however many we are here, let's call it 160, 200 people, um, that's a low number, right? It, probably you could win the American presidency with that proportion of the vote, but there's very other few things that you could, <laughs> that you could win an election with. So, so what I'm saying is nobody thinks that we could do it, basically. Even with this governor, nobody thinks we could do it, right? And I think you should ask yourself why. And the reason is because that idea, now scale it up at the national level. Every city, in every state, every suburb. Think, think about all the, have you ever been to the library in New York City? The giant lions on the side, the big granite lions. The library in Los Angeles, that big tower, like a big gothic tower right in the, downtown in the city. Or the Harold Washington Library in Chicago where I grew up. It's kind of amazing postmodern building. Like think about these incredible things and every branch library, all the people go in them. Like, here's, okay, the reason that we don't think we could do this, that we think we'd say no, is because that idea that I just gave you is the most radical, probably the most radical idea that's ever been pitched in this room. It's probably the most radical idea that we would build that stuff out in every town, every suburb, every neighborhood, right? Crazy radical idea. Way too radical for this moment, right? But this is the mind-bendingly wild thing. This totally radical idea, we did it. Like, it's, it's not a fantasy. Like, we, we actually have those things, right? Nobody thinks that we could do that if we, we had to build it from scratch today. But we have it. And so I want you today to ask yourself how that happened. How do we come up with that idea? How do we generate the collective will to make that idea real? We didn't, we, by the way, we don't have it because of Andrew Carnegie. He built a couple thousand, you know, he gave money for a couple thousand libraries, but let me tell you that that's not why we have a library system. It's a big public project, right? How do we do that? And what happened to us that that thing seems like a fantasy? What happened to us? And then what can we do to make sure that the people who are coming here after us, our kids and our grandchildren, don't go the way of Missouri, don't lose this thing that's got us all here on a Friday afternoon when it's pretty darn nice outside? Right? How do we make sure that other people who come next can have a social infrastructure like this, too? I think that's the best way to kick us off. Are We good? Yeah. Okay. Thank you.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. I want to once again thank you all for joining us here today. Especially during this trying week here in our city for this very important conversation. My name is Gabrielle Jones. I'm vice president of content at Louisville Public Media. And joining us for this discussion today will be Matt Irvin. I'm going to read his official title, the assistant dean of thought leadership and civic engagement, management and entrepreneurship at the U of L College of Business. And thank you all for being here today. Let's, let's have a great, seat. Great. Thanks. So we're gonna build a little bit off of the points that Eric gave in the beginning of this speech and at the end, um, as Lee said, we'll have an opportunity for everyone to ask questions. There's a mic set up there in the middle um, pathway here. So um, when we break for questions, if you have one, please just get up and get in line and we'll start taking them. Eric, you definitely talked about this um, at the beginning of your speech, but I'm wondering if you could do a refresh for us on sort of a, in a nutshell, how you define social infrastructure.
2: Okay, thank you for that. Um, and thank you both for joining me for this Absolutely. conversation. It's really nice. Um, here's how I define social infrastructure, and I'll do it fast. I would say um, social infrastructure, the, the physical places and it could be organizations, but physical places that shape our capacity to interact. And the, the kind of argument I make is that when we're aware of that idea, when we invest in social infrastructure, when we design it well, when we build it well, when we maintain it, which is really important. Anyone who's ever been in a library knows or, or any other kind of gathering place, you gotta maintain it. And when we program it, we get all kinds of returns to our collective life. But when we don't do those things, and a lot of times we don't do those things, and I'm speaking as someone who grew up in Chicago in the 1970s and 80s, I inherited a lot of social infrastructure that generations before me had had invested in, but the city was in a fiscal crisis and it stopped funding the parks and it stopped funding the libraries and and the the kind of public gathering places fell apart and you could really feel the the sense of diminished life there. So that's how I define it.
3: Makes sense. A piece of your thesis that really struck me was the idea that social infrastructure plays a critical but underappreciated role in modern societies. And it was really that underappreciated part that stuck with me. I'm wondering if you have thoughts on why you think we haven't fully appreciated the role that these entities play in economic advancement, mobility, health outcomes, things that you talk about are so important to quality of life.
2: Well, I, I, I kind of referenced this a little bit but I think that you know, two big problems are, we haven't had a name for all these things, the name that groups together these things. And, and so in the, in the book, I don't just talk about libraries, I also write about things like uh, playgrounds, and sports fields, and schools, and you know, churches, you know, not, non-profit organizations, community organizations can do that kind of work. There's a whole set of places that we don't always group together because we haven't had a concept for them. In the private sector, I mean you're here from the business school, there's definitely lots of places in the private sector that serve this function for us, right like restaurants and bars and coffee shops. like you try to understand social infrastructure in England without the pub you're missing something right, or in Paris without the coffee shop. Um, I focus in my work on the on the public activities just because that's where what we kind of have more control of in a democratic society, and there's always the issue in the private market that Sometimes they can wind up getting very exclusive and expensive, um, so I think that's that's another you know that's that, that that's a reason you know that we should talk about them, but in kind of a slightly different way. And I guess the other reason why I think we take you know why we don't pay attention to them, why they're underappreciated, is because, as I mentioned, we we kind of take them for granted. You know, we 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 treat them like they're our birthright, like they've always been there. And it's just to take one quick example, and then we can open up more like. I want you to think about the playground, right? Because playground's kind of an interesting thing. Like the library, there's no, on the third day, God created the playground in Genesis. We had to come up with them, right? We had to, we had to build them. We had to make those things. And let me just ask you, like, if, if, I, if I wanted to know how many relationships exist in Louisville over the last century because two families met each other at the same playground. They're pushing their kids on the same swing set at the same time. And they started up a conversation, and then they had a picnic together, and they shared phone numbers, and then they went over to each other's houses, and then they met each other's friends and the kind of community. How, like, how many, it, it just, just the last century, I don't want you to go too far back, <laughs> but just in the last hundred years, someone gave me a said like, how many relationships do you think exist in Louisville because t- two families met at a playground? What's your guess? Twelve? Twelve? No, way more than 120. Way more. Zillions, you think zillions? Zillions? It's it's a it's a it's okay. It's a really dumb question. I guess no way. We have no idea of knowing the answer to that. But I think what we're all feeling is it's a huge number. It's like millions and millions and millions for sure in one little city. And those things don't just happen. Like if you took away the playground, you know, if you took away, it's true that families might have met like while they were dodging cars on the street because there was nowhere else to hang out, right? Remember that game we used to play with kids, like, dodging the cars on the street? That was pretty fun, 1970s in Chicago. Um, We literally did do that because we had no playgrounds. Um, But I think, like, having playgrounds as social infrastructure completely transforms what it means to live in a neighborhood or a suburb. And I know lots of families that move to suburbs because they can get better playgrounds and better libraries. So... um, we don't have a name for it, and we don't appreciate it, and we act like kind of spoiled children, like we're entitled to all this stuff. And I think one of the th- sobering things about this moment is that all kinds of things that we took for granted are now maybe up for grabs, and, and the only way we're going to get to keep them is if we fight for them.
3: I know. Nat, I think of a lot of your work as helping people to fully appreciate the power of the sort of civic engagement that Eric says that these sorts of spaces help foster. And I'm wondering how you think our choices to invest or divest from these spaces in Louisville have contributed to where our community is at right now.
4: Well, um, thank you for that question. And, Eric, thank you for your book. and And also I would like to express my appreciation for everybody who's here today especially after the events that have happened on this past Monday. Um, you know, the, the way that, uh, and, and Erica, I appreciate your book, especially the way that you, have, you did tackle the, the, the sort of big issue of social infrastructure from the different perspectives of race in America, and Louisville will be a great example of that. For example, if you think about why our city is as it is now, how we have inherited, I've only been here 16 years, But we all know the history of Louisville, how we have the Ninth Street divide. And so when we think about social infrastructure, and your book covers this, some parts of America had to fight for social infrastructure. It was easier to have playgrounds in some parts of the area than it was in others. It's easier to to be able to select and say that you would like to have a playground in your area. But I'm old enough. It's like, you know, when you guys are talking about the 70s, I was born in the 50s. And so I remember how it is that our country has fought against certain groups to have a library. Um, How it is that a community would think of a library as being so special that you would want to keep certain people out. And it is a strain, it is a part of us, the human dynamics, the idea of saying, there's certain ideas that we don't want to tackle. You know, that's an old history of human, that's our history of banning books, it is something that's a part of us. Also, it's a part of us to say that certain groups should have access to that information, even with Carnegie's great uh, generosity. But our history and why we find ourselves in the place that we're in now is because we did not ask ourselves the difficult questions of what would happen if you excluded certain groups from infrastructure. Well, those groups would have to go and create their own social infrastructure. And what we're recognizing, what we're wrestling with right now is the remaking of what social infrastructure is. And Eric, I um, love the fact that you tackle storms because, and I teach, um, I teach a course called Managing in the Future uh, at, mm. at the B School. And one of the things I do is I teach the history of epidemiology, cholera in 1854 with London, because what happens is when you study events that are out of our control, you get to find out how human beings behave. I also teach the history of the, um, the dust bowl and the 30s, because there's another example. And of course, teaching the history of the, teaching history of epidemiology, you study, you get a chance to see how people behave in COVID. Now, of course, all these major events help us to understand the weakness of our infrastructure. Yep. And so what I have now coined uh, a term, which I'll add to yours, is what I think is we're in the midst of a social hurricane where we have digital technology, ChatGPT3, and generative AI, which is going to transform the way we think about libraries, the way we think about spaces. And then we have this really dramatic change in our uh, demographics, aging. And we know who's aging, who's not. And so a place like this, which look look at us in here, right? Now, we're not very diverse. I mean, just look and see, right? This is a reflection of the importance of the library for some of us, but it may not mean that everybody doesn't care about the library, right? It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that. It means something else. And I think uh, when, I, when I finished, uh, I haven't quite finished reading your book, but these are some of the ideas that I've thought about. And those are things, I think, in the last chapter in your book, when you, when you, when you raised the question, I guess it was from Zuckerberg, who says, before we put anything else in the ground, we need to ask the question, what if? You know, and I think that's the challenge, I think, the city of Louisville is faced with in cities across the country. Before we go forward, how do we build the infrastructure that we need?
3: Now, we have obviously been centering a lot of this conversation, despite the many sort of um, places that Eric talks about in his book, In the Library, because we are in one. Mm-hmm. And full disclosure, I am a library kid. I grew up in Pittsburgh, so I thought every library was a Carnegie yeah. Library until I was probably about 15 years old. And I spent many afternoons at my local branch, which was much less grand in the same way that Eric describes kids doing in his book. And it struck me that you talked about not only social infrastructure as a concrete term, but there being different types of social infrastructure, right? And and kinds that form more lasting and more durable bonds, mm-hmm. like libraries. And I'm wondering if you could talk more about the benefits of these durable bonds from institutions like the one we're in, as opposed to the benefits you get from walking on the same levee or something like that.
2: Yeah. So so thanks. Uh, so the idea here is you know you can build social infrastructure. Onto a flood protection system like New York City right now mm-hmm. is trying to figure out how to prevent big and catastrophic storms. I guess pretty much everybody's trying to yeah. do that these days. And one, I argue in the book, like one thing you can do is you could build a wall. My apologies for using that phrase. But you could, you know, you can build this, you can build a seawall and it can just be really narrow with a tip at the at the top. But you could also, instead of just building a simple wall, you could build like a berm, right, that slopes upwards and does it really gradually, and so it has the effect of keeping the water out of the city, but on top of the berm, now you could build a park, you could build a biking path, Mm. you could build a walking path. That's all great, but most of us have never developed strong relationships with the people we who run on the running path with us and like sometimes we you know there's a person we wave at you know i can't believe they go that fast uh right um but mm-hmm. that's not exactly a place you build relationships there are other places mm-hmm. where that really does happen like um years ago there was this uh, very famous book that came out called bowling alone yeah you know about that book yeah. bowling alone it became very famous because some scientists have looked into that, and that actually, apparently, that's the saddest combination of two words in the English language that you know you can come up with. As if bowling by itself wasn't a. It's, no, I'm just. I like to bowl. But bowling was a very sad. The, the metaphor was like that um, people were used to bowl in leagues, and now they're not bowling in leagues as much. And so, and the idea was American civil society is falling apart. And it's a very powerful symbol. And it was speaking to something a lot of us have experienced, which is the sense that like c- this civic life is disintegrating. You know, it's, it's harder, like instead of all going out to the movie theaters, when the book came out, which was 2000, it was like families are just sitting in their living room watching shows. And now from like 2023, I'm like, that sounds like a communist utopia, like Imagine watching a TV show with your whole family in the room with you. It's like, you know, it's all, everybody's got their own individual screen now, right? So, so um, I'm saying all this because I spent some time in the Brooklyn library system while I was working on this book and they came up with this program that they call Library Lanes. Your Library Lanes here? Well, it's got some work to do, man.
3: I'll um, be lobbying for it after okay. reading about it in the okay. book, I'm gonna be honest.
2: Listen, okay, here's what Library Lanes is. The, if, if this is not an awesome idea for Louisville, I don't know what is. Here, here, here it is. There's huge numbers of people who are aging in cities today, and aging alone has become a really big issue. And a lot of us are concerned about like what happens to older people mm-hmm. if they're alone. Um, it, things can be pretty difficult. And not every old person wants to go to like the book conversation in the senior center, because that is happy and exciting for some people, and And a turn off for others. (laughs) And, but people do like to do fun things together. And so here's the Library Lanes program from the Brooklyn Public Library. There's like eight or nine branch libraries, small operations, like a couple floors. They got community rooms. There's TVs in the community rooms. So here's what they did. They got a little bit of funding. They they bought the Wii video game system. Mm -hmm. Okay, They bought a Wii, they connected to the TV, they bought bowling league jerseys, they formed teams for older, older uh, patrons of the libraries, you, you join your branch library's team, and once a week for about two hours, you, you go down to that community room and you have a virtual bowling match against the other branches. You do one at a time. And Okay, I'm a big sports nut, very big sports fan. I, I had the great privilege of growing up in Chicago in the moment when Michael Jordan arrived. I left for college just when they started to win championships. I, went, I got to see Mike, like, Michael Jordan play in Chicago Stadium, not the United Center. i love to go to like a great sports match. It's a great thing for me. I've probably never been in a sports match with as much joy and excitement in the room as there was when I watched... The New Lots Rollers compete against the, the other branch not far from them in Brooklyn. There weren't 20,000 people in the, in, the, in the room. There were like 14 people in the room. Mm-hmm. But what I realized when I was with those folks is that these were people, like the first book I wrote was about a heat wave in Chicago. And it was a book about people who were, mm-hmm. a lot of older people, people dying alone. It was a book about social isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who were in the room with me doing digital bowling in the library, were exactly the people who are most likely to die in the heat wave. But instead of sitting at home alone and being isolated, they were having so much fun together. I have photographs of it. I've got videos I put on my Twitter feed sometime. Like, they're laughing and smiling and forming relationships. And they don't just spend time with each other on the Thursday that they do the bowling league. They're interacting with each other in a durable way. And we have the ability to take... Buildings like this and supercharge them with creative programming like that. And there's no reason why every library in Kentucky and every library in the country shouldn't be you know coming up with those kinds of things. And I'm sure you do lots of things that are like that now. The question is just like, what more can we do? So some kinds of social infrastructure really do have the ability to to help foster relationships that will that will change your life and maybe even save it.
3: No, I have been in Louisville a little over a year now, I'm coming up to a year and a half, and in my time I've lived in eight different metro areas. And in this era, that means I've seen a lot of gentrification. And I've seen libraries play a really interesting role in communities when gentrification starts. Sort of On the one hand, I've seen libraries in gentrifying areas be rushed to the top of the list for renovation and expansion and, and advancement. But then when those libraries open, they're often the only spaces in those communities where everyone seems to be welcomed and seems to feel a sense of place amid new yoga studios and coffee shops and, and things like that. Um, so Eric talks about this a lot in his book and Nat, as a figure of this community, I was wondering your thoughts on how our library has played a role in civic life here and what we could be doing to grow investment in it through investment in the library.
4: Well, um, I had the privilege of serving on um, a really interesting committee that Mayor Fisher started in, I guess, 2012, maybe 2014, something like that. And it was to help our community uh, to think about the future. And I was on the creative educational committee. And one of the ideas that I had, again, thinking about this whole idea of, of the future and social infrastructure in a different kind of a way, I proposed, and the committee accepted that we would have, now think about this, because this is something the library is a part of, that every kid under the age of 18 should have access, free of charge, to the symphony, science museum, to all of the basic cultural uh, structures that we have in the city, but that a kid, if we were going to change the future, that children shouldn't be penalized by the circumstances in which they were born. Kids should be able, I mean, when you're going to test a kid later on and say, do you know Beethoven's Symphony, Fifth Symphony, and they had never had a chance to go, why is that a fair thing? Why is that going to, how is that good for the community if there are certain groups of kids who by no, uh, nothing not that they had to do with, can't have, they don't have the experience of going to the science museum. Or they they don't get the experiences that you would if you had a certain income. Hopefully, and, 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 and happily, the city adopted it. Our community adopted it. And one of the places that students can now go and get the cultural pass is the public library. So every summer, mm. since about 2014, and I think the last number is like 400,000 young children have been getting what's called the cultural pass. And this is a great thing about the business community is that it's all paid for. And all you have to do is you're under 18 and you have an adult, and I have happily seen in the summer hundreds, thousands of kids going from all of our infrastructures for free. All they have to do is, just, you know, they get their little thing signed at the, end of the, at the end of the summer. They get some kind of a big prize. That's an example, I think, of how our community is trying to create a new kind of, because, you know, social infrastructure, maybe Eric, you'll agree with this. It's not, as you say, just a physical thing. People do have to carry, because your book talks about that. There are things that people carry with them, the memories that they have, the ideas that they have, the the, the way the books that they've read when they come into contact with others, that's a part of building the infrastructure too. And so one of the things that makes me most hopeful is young people. I also see that in my MBA students, who I give them an assignment where they have to interview somebody who is over the age of 75, who is of a different race or ethnicity, and they have to interview them about their lives. These are for MBA students to help understand how did they get to where we are now. And it's a part of trying to repair, trying to bring back the infrastructure that we sometimes had and we still carry it. But if you don't know it, if you don't talk to each other, then it's almost as if it didn't exist. Mm.
3: In addition to these durable relationships, Eric, another theme that hits home here in Louisville that your work touches on is the ability for social infrastructure to reduce violence, um, especially as compared to methods like broken windows policing where people crack down on petty crimes and often use stop and frisk techniques. When I discuss sort of systemic problems in my social circles and family and friends, something that I like to say is it it always seems to be easy for people to tackle the easy problem, the symptom, and not to go to the root cause or the harder problem. And it struck me in your book how you talked about people sort of reacting to this um, increase in crime in areas or the idea of crime in areas, but not going back to like, well, this has struck the ideas you know, someone broke a window. How did the building end up abandoned here in the first place, yeah. left in this community? And I was wondering if you could talk uh, just a little bit for the room about the researchers that you spoke with for your book and the outcomes that they found that, you know, um, rehabbing abandoned buildings or even cleaning up lots um, had a better rate of reducing violent crime than these policing tactics.
2: Yeah, uh, so there's a chapter in the book about crime and how you can think about so building social infrastructure to get at crime. Maybe in a more humane way than sending more police officers into the streets. Um, I say this with some trepidation right now as a New Yorker because this past week the mayor announced that actually he's going to cut the budget for libraries next year by $52 million. And, right, but good news, everybody we're going to get robot police dogs. Yeah. Look it up. Yeah, look it up. So
3: instead of being in fear of German shepherds, my kids will be in fear of robot
2: dogs. Yeah, they, probably they'll be in fear of both of those things. But Google Google New York City robot dogs, and for fun, while you're at it, you could also look up New York City overtime payment for police officers, which is so far at about it was as of a few weeks ago it was 110 million dollars and counting for 2023. Um, so New York is back to dealing with the situation by throwing uh, police at it. And the problem is, um, y- so you can actually reduce crime if you get enough police officers out there. I mean, it will, it will make a difference. It will just also um, dramatically increase the likelihood that um, people in black and brown neighborhoods uh, are, ar- are arrested more, uh, often without cause and wrongly. It will dramatically increase the likelihood of police violence. Um, it will not necessarily improve the quality of life. Um, and uh, it will promote a feeling of injustice. And it, it, it generally does. Again, I grew up in Chicago when the police department was literally torturing people to try to get confessions. Um, <clears throat> so not, not, not metaphorical, like literally torturing people. So I'm skeptical about you know, the logic of making a better city just through policing. I'm, I'm not a defund the police. I, I, when something goes wrong, I like to be able to call the police and have them help. But we also have to recognize that if we lean too much on policing and we throw out the libraries, we cause trouble. In the book, I write about this incredible science research project um, that's been happening for the last decade or so in Philadelphia by a whole um, uh, collaborative team at the University of Pennsylvania. And they've looked into the impact of uh, treating abandoned uh, houses and empty lots in the city. Uh, I think Louisville's got some issues like this. Chicago, I grew up around this situation, so it really spoke to me. But you know, deindustrialization was a beast. Uh, a lot of places in this country that had a lot of jobs, had the jobs disappear, and the neighborhoods thinned out. And in many cases, it's been decades since they were repaired. And Philadelphia, like Chicago, I'm taking it like Louisville, has just a lot of abandoned buildings, a lot of empty lots, and it turns out, you know, researchers know that if you live in an area that's got that, even if you live in the area and you walk around it every time, if you, you know, every time you walk by an abandoned building or an empty lot that's got, you know, debris and high, you know, garbage, high high weeds, your heart rate spikes a little bit, and the reason it spikes is because you're stressed. And we actually know that there's a whole bunch of health issues that people who live in poor neighborhoods and depleted neighborhoods experience. And you know, part of that's just poverty is hard, but a lot of it is that the, the social infrastructure is scary. Mm-hmm. You know, It's depleted. And so, so they, they did an amazing thing. They, they got funding to do these pretty inexpensive interventions where they would turn an empty lot into a po- pocket park, you just like clean it up, mow it down, put like some little wood wooden post fence around it, or board up and seal off the abandoned building so that there weren't squatters in there, you didn't have drug deals going down there, like they just, it was safer. And they found, not only did people stop having their heart rates spike when they walked by, because they attached them to these Garmin monitors, and they literally could do that, which is kind of cool, but also they discovered that they were getting greater reductions in gun crime on those blocks than they were getting from increasing police. And it tells you there are all these tools we have at our disposal for dealing with violence that we don't, and crime, that we have been too timid to use. And it's easy if you're a political leader, I mean, the mayor's got other things to do this week, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but it's, it's easy for a mayor to say, I know there's crime, we're gonna solve it by getting more police than it is for them to get at the root causes. But sometimes the root causes are the places where we need to go to be effective. And we might also do that without incurring all the damage that a heavy policing force can sometimes inflict.
3: Ned, do you see some opportunities in our community to take initiatives like this, or even spaces where organizations are already doing this sort of rehab work?
4: I do, I do. and I think that that would be one area that's a bright spot. If you look at over the last maybe eight to ten years, um, there's a lot of growth on the west side now. And and we have a a lot of nonprofit organizations who are combining the use of technology uh, with the notion of transforming blocks at a time. And so we've been pretty aggressive. And I think, you know, this is... um, just reflecting, I wonder sometimes whether or not, when you think about now, what's the very positive things that are going on on the west side of town, I often wonder, and this is a note for the future, when we're thinking about the future, each one of us, members of this community, planters, people who are about to plant a shovel, and I mean that in a metaphorical sense too, we ought to ask ourselves, you know, Missouri is saying they want to defund the library. You know, questions like that. Our community should ask itself, what is it that you think is the outcome? What is an unintent, What is the intent of not investing in children? What is the intent of not spending more money now on young people and preschool? What, 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 what is the intent, what is it that you think will happen if we don't spend more time with the next generation of young little when we think about the epidemic of loneliness that's up ahead? So we have more people on the West End now who are building green spaces. It's a common thing to say that a garden. I love gardening. It's, you know, it, it now is a thing that we're doing. But, you know, you have to still think about the fact that we still, as a community, as, as a people, we quickly can go to, to just turn on a dime and say we're going to close a library. Now, there's some good news out of Texas. One community decided that they are not going, to, you saw that small community outside of Austin says, oh, no, we're not closing the library, which it spoke to me to say, especially after the events on this past Monday, our community shared this extraordinary event. And I was sharing with someone about our city that, you know, we're really, we, we play big time, but we're really a small community. That's why it hit us so badly, so, why it hurt so much. And it it reminded me of how good we are too, because we did, even, you know, all the challenges that we have, we somehow were close enough to each other to say that this had impacted all of us. Even though we compartmentalize grief, which is one of the things that dogs communities is the idea that you have events like, not like what we had on Monday, but we do have our share of violence and we have to compartmentalize it, but part of, of what happened on Monday is it shows us that we have a reservoir that we can build upon. That's why I'm hopeful after, you know, for having a, a gathering like this, thinking about what we can invest in our children, thinking about what's going on, on the West end, thinking about what the private sector can do. Uh, the private sector, Eric, you talk about this in the book, when you have deindustrialization, what we've had is the commodification of so much of our infrastructure so that things that people, used to we used to be a part of the public infrastructure. It's being siphoned off in the private sector. I think that's a real danger by the way mm. yeah.
3: let's stay on that for a minute. um You talked earlier about the ninth street divide, and uh this is not the only community I've lived in with a very mm-hmm. specific physical marker or even a street line delineating economic prosperity and racism from one side to the other. And we have some big infrastructure projects going on in West Louisville, the Goodwill Opportunity Campus, the Norton Hospital. But these are the sort of things that Eric talks about aren't necessarily designed to get people moving between neighborhoods, right? To get people from downtown or the east end over to the west end. Now, the Louisville Free Public Library is renovating the Portland branch and reopening the Parkland branch, which has been closed for over 30 years. You might remember it was a police substation until recently. Those are some projects that represent those more durable bonds that Eric talks about. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little more on that same thread you were about other sorts of investments and the kind of social infrastructure that's now going to the private sector that needs to come back to the public sector, in your opinion, to make those bonds happen.
4: Well, you know, I think um, our way forward is public-private. It is. We have to have the investment of the, the large... Governmental structures, which is what happened as a result of COVID, where we have this new influx of uh, of, of resources. But I I think the important thing in your question here is what does the private sector leadership lead from, and that's where I think we do have good leadership, and which is why we hurting from Monday the the loss of some of the important leaders that we had. But I think that's where when I think about an opportunity, it is for the private sector. To work with the public sector, and that's where our great history of our country is. That's that's how we were able to become the America that many of us have experienced. Is the public-private sector. What has happened since 1970 is we've been just too much emphasis on what the private sector and the role that the private sector plays in the economy, and where everything has to be privatized. Um, and so this this is this I think is a has to be a change. Of the way we start to think about ourselves and COVID was a great example of if we had not had the governmental structure and the private sector working together we would have never made it through COVID. We, not, we would not have made it and that's a good example of the public and private sector coming together. Um, I, I still say up ahead when we have generative AI and what these new technologies are going to represent they're going to be a threat to the fabric of what, who we trust Our institutions, the importance of a library, the way that we think about truth, all those things are going to come at us, and we're going to need public and private, and I'm not even sure you can make a distinction after a while.
3: Eric, could you talk a little bit more about that? Um, In a nutshell, how do we pay for these sorts of investments? We've talked about public-private partnership. I know in your book you've demonstrated ways in which these investments eventually pay for themselves, right? But it, it at least takes some initial diversion of funds, if not initial investment. What are your thoughts on things communities have done that you've been in, or things we could be going?
2: Yeah, so you, you're absolutely right to point to the history of the public-private partnership. I mean, the library, you know, here we are due to the fact that the Louisville Free Public Library is here, but also that there's a Louisville Library Foundation that's yeah. helping to, you know, support all this stuff. Um, and the library is an institution in the U.S. and other countries as well, there has been philanthropic money that, you know, the Carnegie deal was, I'll pay for the building, But then everything after that Mm -hmm. is on you, Mm -hmm. and that's a public-private partnership of of a sort. Um, So that's a a very big part of the story, Um, and, and I think we'll continue to see that. In fact, in the book, I kind of ask, why is it that all these guys who are billionaires many times over, who became billionaires by producing the information age and have more money than anyone could conceivably do anything with in multiple lifetimes, and thousands of people said like, oh, what I would like to do with my wealth is buy Twitter, you know, <laughs> as opposed to help build a country, right? And I mean, it is a, it is a very weird thing um, that the philanthropic <laughs> sector, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing that the philanthropic sector has not stepped up to support libraries the way they have. I I guess I also need to say that we were on the precipice of passing an incredible infrastructure bill, like a $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill that would have transformed the country and I think would have paid for itself Mm -hmm. because it would have revitalized a lot of economies, it would put a huge number of people to work. I think it would have been transformative and it didn't pass, and it didn't pass very, very narrowly. Like, we were a vote away in this country from having a massive public works project, the scale of which we haven't seen since the New Deal. And I understand the senator from Kentucky was all in on that project, by the way. I mean, maybe I read that story wrong, but no. no so, so. Um, no, I mean, Kentucky, like, Kentucky kind of plays an outsized role in the fact that we don't have things like that. I mean, the political power of Kentucky has been, you know, the, that muscle has been used to block programs like that. But but it wasn't just Kentucky because no, no, the Democrats had the vote and they couldn't get the Democrats on board. So, you know, why not? I, you know, part of, part of it is we don't have, and this goes back to my question from the first part of the conversation, What you know, uh, which was really the monologue part of the conversation, uh, which is how did we once produce all these things and where has that vision of a good society gone? And why is it that we don't feel emboldened enough to demand investments in ourselves? And and one reason I call the book Palaces for the People is because, you know, the Carnegie Legacy, but the other is because we live in a moment where there's palaces everywhere. There are so many palaces. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's so, I, I don't, again, I've never been to Louisville before, but... I drove around Lexington. There's palaces in Lexington, right? I'm sure there's palaces around Louisville. I live in New York City. There are palaces floating in the sky. Someone just sold an apartment for $180 million. But we, we haven't built palaces for ourselves. And it's like we're all enthralled with this kind of billionaire class. And we think like, oh, I, I don't want to support policies that would build libraries because when I become a billionaire, I want to be able to keep my money. and. I think that's a, a bit of a delusion. And, and it's like we've, we've bought the, we bought into the reality show fantasy in so many ways. And, and, and I think what we've lost is the sense that in our political life, we actually have the ability to do things differently. And can I say one last thing that's gone on for so long, you must be sick of me. I'm sorry, but I waited four years to get to this library. I'm gonna have my say now, Chandra. That's right. Okay, so, so um, Here's what I want to talk about. Here's one of my favorite things that happens in the library every day. And I would encourage anybody who's never done this to try to do this in a non-creepy way. (laughs) The children's library is right across the hall. You've been to the children's library? You've seen it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's one of the best things that happens in a library. Probably every day, but maybe, maybe, I don't know. I'm going to say every day. Some kid in Louisville gets a library card. Absolutely. Now, why does that matter? Does anyone remember getting your first library card? Just Absolutely. Curious. Okay. All right. Think about this when you get your library card, it is the first time, probably, in your conscious life that someone has given you this kind of badge of recognition of your independent identity. It's not quite citizenship, because, as you know, you don't need to be a citizen to get a library card. Um, but it's your identity, it's it's that you belong to this community. And with this library, you are you now have status, right? You can you can you can get something. There's a there's a public good, right? It's Curious George. And you can take home Curious George with you, right? Curious George can come home with you. Angelina Ballerina, she can come too, right? You get uh come home with you, you can bring that and a librarian is gonna see the library card and they're gonna say, oh Lee, nice to meet you, Lee. I'm very happy you're taking out these books. Please return them in a few weeks. And now Lee might think, why should I return these books? But then Lee goes home. This is like the four-year-old version of Lee I'm talking about here, he's a very adorable child. And, and, you, and you read Curious George and you're like, wow, this book's pretty good. I hear there's like 25,000 more Curious George books there. And I'd like to read them, but, I, but I, you realize, like, I'm only going to get to read the next Curious George book if the other kids who use my library return their copies. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so my well-being in the world depends not just on how many books I take out, but also on whether the people around me return their books. And by the way, this book smells pretty good. I'm tempted to eat it. <laughs> But if I eat the pages from the Curious George Book, then the other kids won't get to read it either, and the library won't be able to get the new Harry, you know, Harry Potter or Curious George books that come out. And so think about all these things that happen in that moment. You have your first taste of what it is to be citizen. you get a taste of what it means to be part of a community. You start to think about reciprocal relationships. You come up with an idea of like a public good a shared space right there's a sense of a commons responsibility connection mm-hmm. that that's public education that happens as, that's civic education that happens cuz you get your first library card now nobody's ever told a kid in Louisville that when they get their library card that's what they're going to do but when Missouri stops funding the library it's telling people you can't have that experience anymore right and, and I think part of why we have such a diminished understanding of what we can do collectively, what we can do in civic life, is it, we don't appreciate those moments, we don't talk about them, and all of our investments in the other direction. Like Instead, it's like, here's your Starbucks card. If you spend $250 at Starbucks, next time you come in for your grande drink, we'll give you a jumbo. <laughs> right? That, like... Kids are more likely to have a McDonald's card, right? And it's going to be, it's going to have all these cool things on it. They're more likely to have a Starbucks card, you know, a toy store card. They have purchasing cards, but they don't, they, they need to have the library card. And I think all of us have to do a better job honoring that, calling attention to it, making sure our kids know about it, making sure our communities know about it. Collectively... You know, you made this important point, and I don't know the racial geography of Louisville, but in a lot of cities, the libraries are concentrated where the white people are. In, in a lot of cities, like, the public institutions are, are better where the wealth is. Right? Like, if, like, I grew up in Chicago, very, very segregated city. I'd right? like to show you the difference between the libraries in the black neighborhoods and the libraries in the white neighborhoods when I was growing up, let alone the fact that all these people left Chicago to go to suburbs because the suburbs, they really have palaces and they really have palaces mm-hmm. for people. So when you have this uneven geography, you know, you encourage some kids to do this mm-hmm. and, and not others. And we need to do better on that. Absolutely. And it's not Absolutely. just a racial divide, there's no. a class divide around this Absolutely. too. Like if you go to poor white communities Absolutely. in this state and in many others, they're treated the same way. Yeah. So I think we can do a lot more than we think we can do. Mm-hmm. I agree. You ask where the money's going to come from. We have the money. We, there's no shortage we of have money, money in America. Just up here on the stage, we have the money right here. Just there's no backwards. shortage America, the money in America. for yourself.
3: <laughs> I will say, though, I'm struck by um, Feed Louisville has this tagline that says, no one saves us but us, or something like that. And I think that's exactly the spirit of what you're talking about. Before we wrap up, as a solutions-oriented journalist at heart, I can't help but not let us leave this discussion without talking about some of the things that people themselves are doing to solve these problems in our community as opposed to a lot of the top-down solutions we've talked about earlier in this discussion. I think about the librarians in this community and beyond who make programs happen every single day with a zero dollar budget. I've lived in communities where the public library was pretty much also a day shelter for the unhoused Mm -hmm. um, and certainly see that trend here a bit. I think even about the 2020 protest movement in Louisville as people kind of coming out into the street to reclaim public space and very quickly forming bonds and relationships that jumped off a different level of civic engagement in our community as seen by who runs for office or the 20 million people who want an open city council seat. So I'm wondering if you both could talk about the solutions you've seen from the ground up, from people themselves, to to fix these divides in our civic life. And I'll start with you, Nat.
4: Well, you know, teaching in the university, I'm really privileged to see to to see the world through the perspective of younger people. So I would like to leave my leave my comments today with with a sense of hope. There, uh, at the University of Louisville, it, it is the people's university. Um, it's a place that has tremendous re- resilience. Um, we have some of the best students across the country. We have some of the best professors across the country, notwithstanding my colleague here, you know. And um, but if you could hear some of the ideas that even you know, I teach MBAs, but I also occasionally we'll have time to meet with uh, undergraduates. They are enormously talented, and they have a lot to offer. That's the first thing. Second thing is I also get a chance for the last. 12 or 13 years, been teaching at Central High School. And I would just love for you all to know just how talented our young people are in this community. So I've worked on several programs, like Thrivals a Digital Transformation Academy, where kids go and learn technology, like ChatGPT in the summer. What I'm working on and what I encourage you all to work with us on is invest in young people. It's the secret sauce that our community still has not figured out. That we have the minds, the imagination, the curiosity right within the city of Louisville to solve every problem that our city is going to face. What we've got to do as the, as the boomers, God bless us, <laughs> for the mess we have created. Well, somehow we've got, to, we, we've got to do this, and this is not going to feel good. Our children know that we don't know what the hell we're doing. (laughs) Seriously. When they look at what we have handed them, they look at us like, you? This is serious. You serious? This is what you've created? And they have different ideas, but we need to find a way to incorporate them into public policy, I've been working on trying to get 100 to 200 young people involved in healthcare, public policy, understanding it, understanding the epidemic of loneliness. That is our key to the future. And that's where I think a city like ours, we're not that big, but we could do that. But we need the the next generation, excuse me, this generation to put our arms around the minds of our young people and invest in them and less in us more in them.
2: That that? That's questions. That was great. Good question. Yeah, I thought I mean, okay. I can't I can't do better than that. I'll say um, over the last 4 years while I was waiting for this invitation to finally, you know, get finalized. It got uh, lost
3: in the mail. Exactly. Another piece of public
2: infrastructure exactly. that needs rebuilding. I I wrote a book about the pandemic actually, which is coming out in the beginning of next year. It's called 2020, and in 2020, I read a lot about mutual aid, the rise of mutual aid networks and all mm-hmm. the amazing things mm-hmm. that um, I've seen people in communities do when the government kind of couldn't, didn't step up or when businesses didn't step up, and the stories are pretty amazing. Actually, we have a lot of capacity that we don't always see that shows up in these moments. In fact, I'm guessing what's been happening in Louisville the last few days is a very powerful demonstration of civic capacity. I, I don't know what's been happening in people's neighborhoods, but I'm guessing that there's been a lot of trauma this week and a lot of coming together uh, as well. And so we, we've seen time after time, communities that get traumatized find ways to, um, to, to do something better and to support each other. And I guess, you know, the question for us now is really, can we, can we galvanize that energy in a sustained way so that it's not just you know the week or two after a shooting, or it's not just the month or two after a pandemic, but that it's, so, it's something that informs us more regularly because the kinds of battles that we're about to fight, like the battle against climate change, or maybe the battle against the robots. I wasn't that worried about the robots until this panel. <laughs> keep hearing about chat GBT, uh, I, that He might even be a robot himself as far as I know. So, so, I mean, we do, have, but we do have big challenges coming. So uh, the question is, can we, can we organize that um, so that we're really up for it? Because you, you, you don't win these things with a five-day attention span. It takes something sustained.
3: We want to take some of your questions. So why don't you all start lining up in the center if you do have questions. Um, I'm, come on up, Chandra, I'm gonna pass it to her. Thank you all. We have a great crowd here today and I'm excited to get the questions. Um, I'm going to have to dip out because we also have another event tonight. And so um, this was such a great segue into the invitation I want to give to each of you. We want this conversation to continue yeah. Yeah. and um, we invite you to sign up with the Library Foundation. We provided information in the back for you to sign up. We will present an invitation um, as we go forward in the future to continue this conversation and to create an organized community um, that can really look at these challenges. And obviously we have the best space in the city to come back together to. So thank you all for being here today. Um, Enjoy the rest of the conversation. Thank you, um, we'll, we'll have some panelists that will have to leave us shortly as well, but please go ahead with your question. Uh,
0: so I just wanted to preface it by saying this was worth waiting four years for, to hear this conversation, thank you so much to the three of you. I work for a, a new park that's a brownfield remediation on the other side of the river, and our offices are located in a former Carnegie Library because the uh, new library is much bigger, it's just down the street, and it's a really elevating experience to come in and out of that building every nice. day. Nice, um, I also teach graduate landscape architecture students and I use your work all the time. And they really love it because it's very different from a lot of the other uh, materials that they have to work with. So what I wanted to ask is, you know, I know that aside from libraries, you talk about a lot of other forms of social infrastructure like community gardens, even just good quality sidewalks. In your experiences, your travels, your studies, what are some of the ideas from other places that we might want to import here? And that can be physically other countries, like you referenced London and Paris, but also other cultures within our country itself.
2: Thank you. That's a, it's a great question, and it's, a, it's a, what's challenging about that question is that there's so many varieties of social infrastructure, and they're really tailored to local cultural preferences. And I guess. Um, so I, I'm tempted to like, my wife's family is like, partly from Kentucky and partly from Syria. So so um, I'm tempted to talk to you about like, going to the Middle East and the the souk and the, the like the the mm. marketplace as this kind of historic area for s- social life and that kind of travels into our contemporary farmers markets and things like that. and and, and that's a kind of like a community institution that's a little bit of a public-private marketplace um, and that can work magically, like if you're traveling in the Middle East and you've been in the historic souks, they're really incredible places. Um, but, but there's so many of them, You know, the pub in England and the cafe, da-da. The thing is that when you are trying to design social infrastructure, and you know this from your teaching, for a place, it's really important to first understand the place and the people there and the things they like to do and the resources they already have. And sometimes in the design world, people come in with an idea that of something else they like <laughs> and they try to plug it in, right? Like, oh, I saw this awesome thing in Chicago. It's definitely gonna work in Louisville. But it turns out, like, social life in Louisville is a little bit different. So while I think there's all variety of things out there, I guess what the way I want to answer your question is by saying, I think in the design process, and I got to you know help to run a, a big design competition for the federal government after Sandy, the really important thing for us to do is before we start building something, to do a lot of research on the place where we're building, to really listen to the people who are there, different stakeholders, not just the big political officials and the business owners who are always gonna show up, but also the community organizations that, that need representation, the young people who have their own way of doing it, and to, and to make it a, a more iterative and participatory process. Because I think when we do that, we get much better designs that work for people where they are. So I hope that you don't take that as a dodge, it's not. It's really like, I think there's just an infinite variety of places that can do magical things, and some of them can be used in the toolkit. But what, what's really crucial is making sure you've got the right tool for the right job.
3: Nat, I know you have to depart, so I wanted to give you a graceful exit and ask Eric if he'll stay around to take a few more questions. And thank you all for bearing with us and being patient today.
4: Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Nat. So, thank, you for, yeah, thank you for being this.
3: Please go ahead.
5: Got a question about um, moving forward, particularly the individuals in this room and what we can do to better invest in social infrastructure in our city. So Nat was correct that this is a fairly not diverse room for many reasons, but one of which being we are all at minimum open to the idea of social infrastructure, I'm sure, at various spectrum levels there, but w- and when we leave this room, it is our job to then go out and convince those that we live with, those that approve our budgets to invest in social infrastructure, because we see many times in many cities that social infrastructure ideas will die at a neighborhood association meeting or a planning meeting or a, or a legislative body budget meeting. So I'm curious, what do you see as those light bulb moments or those aha moments when people... So as we leave this room and go out into our neighborhoods or advocate to our legislators, do you have any tips for us uh, to make that point that might convince them? Because as you say, there hasn't been a term for this for a long time. It's not embedded in the culture. How how do we get through people?
3: Um, As someone who lives in this community and is new-ish to it, I want to talk about an experience that I had here that makes me think of the things that you're talking about. And something that I work on or think about as we think about the sort of journalism we do for this community is is who is this story for, who is this thing for, and why do they care? So essentially thinking through like a design thinking process of user research and finding out what it is that the people in your community actually want and need. And you talked a little bit about this the idea of, and you know, I used to be married to an urban planner, so in urban planning it's like, oh, they did that in Boston, it worked, let's just bring it to Philadelphia to work here, boom, and then it never works, right, that idea. And when I first moved to Louisville, um, I was here for maybe six months before someone said the words, the dirt bowl, to me. And once someone said those words to me once, and this is a, a community-driven basketball tournament that happens here and has been happening for decades in this community and is really a, a huge part of the fabric of the black community here, right? So I found out about the Dirt Bowl when we at Louisville Public Media did some focus groups and user research with um, people who live in the zip codes that have the highest percentage of black residents in Louisville. And before that, I'd never heard anyone say that to me. None of my colleagues ever said that word to me. You know, we're a slightly diverse newsroom and organization, but most of my colleagues are white middle class people. None of the people that I met at the doctor's office or the gym or the places that I go ever said anything to me about this Thing that is a cultural institution here that's been here for decades and is really a, a point of pride and community mm. for the black community here. So when I think about like how do we evangelize and spread the word about social infrastructure and the importance of it, the first thing I think about is breaking down those barriers to really learn what is it that's already going on in our community, what is it that resonates with everyone in our community, not just the people in our trusted circles who tend to look like us and be in the same class as us and go to the same places as us and thinking about how do we design something for them as opposed to a group of people at a nonprofit or in a neighborhood planning commie- meeting coming up with an idea that's really just iterative of the experiences of these six people in the room and then trying to make that idea work out there in a bigger
2: world. I, th- I think that's, that's a great example. And, um, you know, the only thing I'll, I'll say is the, that's literally the reason I wrote this book. I mean the 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 book is my eff- attempt to share with you a language and a set of stories that I hope will travel into the communities where you will go. You know, when we leave this room, um, and you know, I hope they have the book at the library here. You should be able to take it out. It's a it's a Wait, it's we a, have the book? it's yeah. a re- it's a resource for you. it's a resource. Um, and I think this language has some resonance, and I, I hope it does for you as well. And I think if you can connect the abstract language of things like social infrastructure to things like the dirt bowl, that, that it, it connects it even better. Um, so my experience has been that this is something people really understand, that like people want a, a word for this, and people want to find a way to support it, and um, you're totally right that the bias is... The people here in the room are people who kind of get it already, or at least open to getting it, and we know that we live in a divided place where not everybody is open to the idea that a library is a good thing, for instance. Um, So we have more persuading to do than we used to. Um, But I actually think that as much madness as we're seeing around the library and the defund the library and the ban the book and all this stuff, it's actually kind of a fringe of fairly extreme leaders who are pushing us in this direction. And that most of us, regardless of our political ideology, our background, like most of us kind of appreciate the things like libraries. Like I've been to a lot of very conservative communities where people really like their library and they use it very often. I've been to a lot of democratic, liberal conservative communities where people really like the library and they like their parks and they like their athletic fields. You know, they want to have like nice grass on the baseball field and they want the basketball courts to have rims and nets and you know like painted lines and we can we can actually build up from that kind of stuff and sometimes I would say I guess this is the last thing and 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 then maybe we'll we'll wrap up is in a very divided society where there's a lot of ideological uh, contentiousness it's best to start with the things that are slam dunks and build up from there and If you jump into the conversation with like Trump versus Hillary Clinton and who you like more, it's not going to go anywhere. And if you jump into it with like, did you see that they just rebuilt the basketball court down the block? Or hey, did you check out the new library renovation? That they made, or you know, what, those kinds of things, you can you can build up from it. It's, I, I've talked about the fact that I love sports, and part of it is that like there's some things in our society that are just kind of approachable, like we can connect through them. And sports isn't the only one, but it's 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 nice to have those things. And, and I guess my advice would be to to start with the simpler things and build up.
3: Thank you all for being here today, and thank you so much, Eric, for taking a four-year journey to get to the louisville Creek Public Library. I ask you all to give him a round of applause. Thank you. And I wanna thank Lee and Chandra and everyone here at the library for organizing this wonderful event and for giving me the opportunity to be with you this afternoon. Um, We know we've all been through a lot this week, so please take care of yourselves and your loved ones and let's go out there and move the needle on social infrastructure in our community.